Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're getting ready to start a series in Mark. You can turn there. You can also find that in your bulletin. <clears throat> I heard the story this week of a couple that lives in the suburbs of Atlanta. And I, you know, that, that could be almost to the South Carolina state line. But, but, but they're somewhere in the, in the suburbs of Atlanta. And they've had this problem uh, with strangers randomly coming up and knocking on their doors uh, on a regular basis. And the reason that these people are, are showing up at these folks' doors is because their Find My Phone app is telling them that their missing phone or missing tablet or missing computer is at these people's house. Uh, the, the first time this happened, the, guy went, the husband went to the door and there were three young men outside. And they weren't so much looking for a phone, they were looking for their friend and they had tracked his phone and it was their app was telling them he was at their house and they were very agitated and so the couple's obviously a little con, uh, concerned by this and they talk through this and it continues to happen people keep showing up at their house looking for their phone looking for their tablet so they call the cell phone companies they call the FCC nobody knows what's wrong nobody wants to take responsibility so they start looking on the internet the wife starts posting things in message boards does anybody know why this is happening they look through their house to see if there's a lot of stolen cell phones buried somewhere. And none of this is true. And so finally, somebody sees the message on the message boards, and they're at their house one day, and this guy walks up kind of out of the blue and says, I think I can help you with your problem. And he walks in, and he kind of unloads a briefcase full of Ghostbusters equipment. You know, he, he, lays it, he lays it all over the kitchen table, and he starts checking radio waves and cell phone, all this stuff. And finally, what it comes down to, and I'm not going to be able to explain this right, I'm not enough of a techie, but, but basically your computer has an ISP address, and there are companies that connect that ISP address with a street address, and so that you, that's one of the ways they locate things. And for some reason, somebody had messed up and put all, a whole bunch of addresses at the end of their block. The other thing that happened was about every third house in this neighborhood was deserted. Most of the people living in the neighborhood were elderly and didn't have Wi-Fi. And so it was kind of a Wi-Fi desert. And the other thing, evidently, they used to locate your phone is not just the cell phone towers, but everybody's little Wi-Fi networks. They know where you are. Um, so they, all this works together when you're trying to find a phone. And those two things, both getting or one getting messed up and one being the Wi-Fi desert, somehow was sending everybody to their house. Um, the app was taking in this information, it was interpreting it, and it was sending people to the wrong house. Faulty information led them to the wrong house. Um, every day, you and I are taking in information. We're, we're information receivers. We get information from our friends, from the internet, from television shows, from our teachers, from all over. We're receiving information. And that information that we receive always has a message attached to it. Sometimes it's obvious what the message is. Sometimes it's not so obvious what the message is. But, but we're always being told something through this information we're taking in. We're being told, here's what the good life looks like. Here's where you're going to find joy and happiness and meaningness and meaning, meaningfulness and contentment in life. And we're taking these messages in. I want to suggest that with, with all of those messages coming in, if we don't take into consideration 
the message of the Bible. Specifically, if we don't take in the message as it relates to Jesus Christ himself, who we're going to talk about today, we're never going to find the joy and the meaning that we're looking for in life. We're going to wind up where we think our phone is supposed to be. We're taking in the message. We're going to wind up where we think our phone is supposed to be. We're going to be at the wrong house. We're going to take all this information in about, hey, this is where you find meaning and happiness and contentment. We're going to take that all in and we're going to act on it. We're going to wind up at the wrong house and we're not going to find the meaning and the joy and the contentment that we're looking for. Without taking in the information about Jesus, we're going to be duped by the wrong information. So for the next, I don't know how long we're going to do this, several weeks at least, uh, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, and I want us to consider who Jesus is and what his message is. And let me start by, by throwing this out to you. Napoleon once said, I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. I think I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. Jesus Christ was more than a man. He goes on to say that he's quite convinced that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Was Napoleon right about that? And if he was right about that, shouldn't we pay attention to who Jesus Christ is and what he said? Isn't that something we ought to give our careful attention to? We're going to do that uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, If you would, look with me. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we do thank you that we have uh, this, your word, uh, available to us, uh, that we're able to sit here and, and read it and, and talk about it and proclaim it. Uh, God, thank you that we have the freedom to do this. We pray, Father, that you would uh, use your word now in our hearts, and our minds, uh, that we would see who Jesus is uh, and be challenged to act on that appropriately. And we pray it uh, in his name. Amen. Well, uh, since we're going to be in the, the Gospel of Mark for a while, let me, let me give you just a little bit of a, some background information before I kind of jump into this. Mark was written by John Mark, uh, who is a friend of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, the apostles were known to meet at Mark's house during the early days of the church. He was with Paul on uh, several of his journeys, and he was with Peter when Peter uh, was, died in Rome. In A.D. 140, Papias, one of the early church fathers, wrote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately all that he remembered of the things said and done by our Lord, but not, however, in order. Uh, and I think it's one thing that's important to remember as you're reading the Gospels and you're kind of looking at the order is these guys weren't as concerned as we are to always make sure everything falls in chronological order. They're more interested in telling a story. So that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, the, the Gospel of Mark was written in the 50s or 60s, not 1950s, uh, but, but 50s, double zero 50s, um, 50s or 60s, so not very long after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it was written primarily with a non-Jewish audience uh, in mind. So there's your, there's your background. Uh, but Mark starts off this book with a pretty massive claim. And this claim really sets the tone for the entire book. So that's what I want us to look at today. What is the claim that Mark makes? Why is this claim good news? And how should I respond to it? What's the claim? Why is it good news? And, and, and how should I respond to it? What does it have to do with me? So first of all, what is the claim? Mark makes here two incredible claims, if you really can kind of step back and, and, and think about two incredible claims right off the bat. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He states right off the bat that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Christ referred to an anointed royal ruler. It's also in the Greek, it's the, it's the word that was used to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. So basically it means the same thing here as Messiah. The Messiah was the one who was expected to deliver Israel from her oppressors and to establish God's kingdom on earth. So Mark right off the bat says Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God. And if that's not audacious enough for you, he gets more audacious. Uh, he, in verse 2, quotes from a combination of two Old Testament passages from Isaiah and from the book of Malachi. And the bulk of the quote is actually from Isaiah, and I think that's why he references Isaiah here. But in any event, the passages talk about a messenger and a voice crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord is coming, but first the messenger is coming to prepare the way for the Lord who is coming. If you were to go back to Isaiah 40 and look there in verse 3, 
It says, prepare the way of the Lord. And the word Lord in your English Bibles would be in all caps. Now, now what does that mean there when, when they have the word Lord in all caps in your English Bible? It means they're translating from the Hebrew the word Yahweh. Right? It's not just saying God g- generically. But Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's when he met Moses, he said, I am. Right? I am who I am, Yahweh. And so here's what's happening. The Lord who comes, who is to come, is Yahweh. He is the coming one. So the messenger, are you with me? The messenger comes to prepare the way for Yahweh. The messenger is coming to prepare the way for God himself. So then what does is, what is John do with this? In verse 4, John appears. John appears to do what? To prepare the way. He's the messenger. Talked about in Isaiah. But who is he preparing the way for? Verse 7, After me comes one who is mightier than I. Verse 8, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, in those days, who shows up? Jesus. Jesus of Na- from Nazareth of Galilee. What's Mark trying to say here? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. The Son of God who has come, who John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for, is somehow God himself in the flesh. I'd say that's a pretty bold claim. And that's what Mark starts his gospel with. Now, I would see two things from this. Number one, Christianity is very much connected to the Old Testament. It flows out of the Old Testament. The Messiah has come. The one who was hoped for has shown up. Uh, the Old Testament is not just this crazy book that's not connected to anything. Right? The Old Testament prepares the way for Jesus, points us to Jesus. The, the, the whole Bible from beginning to end is this book, this story about Jesus. And Mark says, this guy that, that we've been longing for and hoping for in the Old Testament, he's here. And he's God in the flesh. Which gets to the second thing, and that's what I, the main point I want to make here. Mark is saying... The Messiah that we hope for is the Son of God. The Messiah that we hope for is God Himself in the flesh. That's the claim. That's the claim that the the entire Gospel of Mark is making. He's making His case. He's unfolding His case. He's showing us, He's seeking to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. So what do we do with that? We're going to come back to it in a minute. Um, what I want to talk about first is, why is this claim good news? Why is the fact that Jesus has come in the flesh, that God has come in the flesh, why is this good news? Well, look at, look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then go down to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And then at the very end of that verse, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. The word gospel means good news. 
It means good news. Uh, it was often used to describe reports of victory from the battlefield. You brought in the gospel of victory, the good news that you had won the fight. Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Mark is saying, I've got a message about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, and it's good news. This message I bring to you is good news. Now, y'all, last week, if you were with us, we talked about what it looks like for us as a church to spread the good news, to reach people with the message of Jesus. I want to ask us, when, when, when people see our lives... Do we look like people who have heard good news? Does our life take on a flavor? Is the gospel making such a difference in us? Do we reflect, do our lives reflect that we have heard good news about God? Has it really been good news to you? Or when you try to tell people about Jesus, are they under the impression that you are actually telling them something good? That you are bringing them good news? Do we present it as good news? Well, why is it good news? Why is it good news? Really, the, the whole Gospel of Mark is, is going to be about this, but let me suggest something to you this morning. Why is it good news? Look in verse 8. John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. That's why this is good news. Now, some of you are going, okay, that doesn't sound like that great news. What's that all about? This is good news because this is what God has been promising in the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32 speaks of the day when the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field becomes a forest. Isaiah 44.3, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Ezekiel 11, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And Mark is saying, that day is here. That day that all these prophets were talking about, that day is actually here. The day of renewal. The day when hearts are actually going to be changed. The day when God pours out His Spirit is here. John's baptism was an external washing. It was a picture of cleansing. But it couldn't actually change your heart. It couldn't really change you from within. The Holy Spirit does do that. The Holy Spirit changes us from within. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body when we come to know Jesus Christ. This is good news that, the Spirit is, that Jesus will baptize with the Spirit because the Spirit comes to convince and to convert and to change and to cleanse and to dwell within believers in Jesus Christ. He comes, he comes to assure us of our sonship. He comes to give us a sense of God's presence 
with us. This is good news. Well, who's this good news for? Who, who should be excited about this good news? Well, who is being baptized by John? It was people who were confessing their sins. It was people who were able to acknowledge that they needed forgiveness. Y'all, we're going to see this as as we go through the the Gospel of John. That's the exact same people that Jesus came to baptize with the Spirit. Sinners. Jesus came to baptize sinners with the Spirit. Hookers, porn addicts, unstable people, adulterers, alcoholics, homosexuals, thieves, robbers, Rich people who look down on poor people, middle class people who want to get rich while at the same time they're pushing the poor people down, Sabbath breakers, idolaters, sinners. Jesus came to baptize sinners with the Holy Spirit. People like you, people like me, who are willing to confess, yes, this is true of me, and to run to Jesus. That's who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus came to baptize with the Spirit. You don't, you don't make yourself acceptable. Jesus doesn't say, okay, once you get to this level of holiness, then I'll baptize you with the Spirit. He came to baptize sinners with the Spirit. In fact, He came to stand in the place of sinners. And I think that's at least part of what this baptism here that Jesus undergoes is talking about. Because what what happens here in verse 10, uh, verse 9 and 10 here, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was without sin, he comes and he gets in line to be baptized. He's standing there with everybody else. He's standing with all the sinners to go down and to be baptized by John. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew records John basically saying, what are you doing? You, you don't need to be in this line being baptized by me. I'm, I'm the one that should, being, should be baptized by you. What's he doing? Why is Jesus baptized here? He's identifying with the people in the line. He's identifying with sinners. Because that's what he came to do. To identify with sinners and to take on their sin and to go to the cross and to do away with it. He came to take the punishment that people like you and me deserve. He came to identify with sinners. In Luke 12, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he's he's looking forward to another baptism. And basically he's looking forward to his baptism in blood on the cross because what does he say next in Luke 12 and how great is my distress until it is accomplished this baptism is simply preparatory for the baptism that's coming I'm identifying with sinners now I'm going to stand in the place of sinners when I hang on the cross for them Jesus came to stand in our place to stand where we ought to be standing so that our sins could be forgiven. So that we could receive the Spirit. 
so that we can be cleansed and made new and, and brought into the very family of God. That's good news. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a new show on Netflix. Uh, it's only six episodes so far. I'm a little disappointed, but it's, it's a made-for-Netflix series called River. Has anybody, has anybody seen River? Okay, you're all losers. Um, or maybe I am. What are the, what are the numbers saying here? Um, but, but, this, but this series is about a British detective named John River. And his partner is gunned down. And he's basically trying to, to figure out who did it and, and what happened. And, I, and I've just started watching, but it's obvious in the first two episodes that River has some sort of mental illness. But he hasn't been taking any medication for it. But basically what had been happening, his partner had been helping him hold things together. But now she's gone. And he's starting to show some chinks in the armor. He's having a few too many conversations with people who aren't actually there in public out loud like his partner who is dead. And so he, he's getting a little unstable. But his condition makes him amazingly sympathetic to other people who are broken. And so he's having this conversation with a pregnant junkie who's, who's used one too many drugs and she's just, she's not all there anymore. And he says to her as they're talking, he says, you're all right, Tia. Even as you are, you're all right. Not everyone fits in this world. And you can see his, his sympathy toward her. And then he says, do you hear me? We can do this. <laughs> you can do this. He says, we can do this. We're all right. We just have to... And then he kind of trails off. And Tia looks at him and she says, pretend? Is, is that what we have to do? We just have to pretend? And he says, yeah. We just have to, we just have to pretend. And it's like he's acknowledging... Yeah, broken people like you and me can be okay as long as we pretend. We can kind of fake our way through life. But then later in the, in the same episode, he's, he's been visiting the police psychiatrist. And he's been lying to her the whole time. And he finally comes clean with her and, and, and he says, I have taken medication for my condition in the past. I'm not taking it now. I didn't disclose any of this when I was hired. I, I knew that was wrong. And what's he done? He's finally stopped pretending. He stopped pretending and he's starting to own who he really is. Y'all, the, the gospel is good news for people who are tired of pretending. Who are tired of showing up and dressing up on Sunday morning and saying, everything's fine, I'm fine, no struggles with sin here. The gospel is for people who are tired of pretending that everything is okay. Tired of pretending that they have it together. Tired of hiding their sin. Tired of covering their sin. Because in the gospel, Jesus says, bring it all to me. Bring all of your sin to me that you've been hiding and keeping from everybody around you. Bring it all to me and throw it on my back and I'm going to take it to the cross and you'll be done with it. I'm going to take care of it. That's good news. That's good news. And if you get that, if you can understand that, that will absolutely set you free. So that you can say with John River, the detective, I have been lying. 
I have been doing things I shouldn't have been doing. I did things I'm ashamed of in my past. Some of them are still going on now. But it's time to stop pretending. The gospel is good news because it frees you to stop pretending and own who you are and lay the burden of who you are on Jesus Christ. What's that have to do with you? What's that have to do with me? Well, you have a decision now. What are you going to do with this information about Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with this information about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? But let me let Jesus ask you the question. Or let Jesus call you to do something. Verse 14, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. What's that mean? What's, what's Jesus saying to us there? Uh, repenting means acknowledging I'm the one who's rebelled against God. I deserve His wrath. And then confessing that sin and turning from it and running to God. Even as I believe that Jesus came to die for sinners. It's a turning and a resting all in one. Repent. If you can imagine you spent your whole life walking away from God, it's a, it's a turning around and walking back toward God. R- repentance is kind of like breaking up with somebody that you know you need to break up with. All right? And it can get messy and it can get complicated and it can get, take a long time to get untangled from that other person. But repenting, leaving sin is, is kind of like that. It's messy and it's complicated and it can take a long time to get untangled from. But by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit that you have been given when you came to Christ, you get up every day and you repent and you believe again that Jesus did come for sinners, that Jesus did come for messy repenters. And you rest in that. You believe the good news about Jesus. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with Mark's claim? What are you going to do with the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God? What are you going to do with Jesus' call to you to repent and to believe the gospel? Uh, John Stott has said that people that meet the real Jesus always react in an extreme way. He said, if you've really met Jesus, you'll react in an extreme way. He said uh, something along these lines. He says, when you really come to to understand what Jesus was saying, you either hated him and tried to wipe him out, or secondly, you were scared to death and you tried to get as far away from him as possible, or thirdly, you knelt at his feet and laid down the sword and said, command me, tell me what to do. But he says, nobody who met the real Jesus ever said, nice sermon, preacher. Nice sermon, Jesus. That was very inspiring. Nobody ever said that to Jesus. They always reacted in an extreme way. Uh, C.S. Lewis once famously said that many people will say, well, I can accept the claim of Jesus being a great moral teacher, but I don't know about all this stuff about him being... God. 
Uh, Lewis wrote, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What are you going to do with Jesus? Uh, Emil Calais, and maybe I'm pronouncing this right, and maybe I'm not, but he was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he was born in a small French town. He received an education that he said was very naturalistic to the core. He basically grew up as a pagan. When he was 20, he fought on the front lines during World War I and saw unspeakable tragedies unfold around him. And it really served to solidify him in his unbelief concerning God. Uh, he was wounded wound up spending nine months uh, in, a, in a hospital in Germany, and he met a Scotch-Irish girl there who he married, who was actually a Christian. But Emil told her that no Bible was ever going to be allowed in their home. Like, no Bible is going to be found in here. And yet, even as he said this, he found himself desperately looking for meaning in life. He was a big reader, and he went through books and books and books, trying to find some meaning in his life. He said, I had been longing for a book that would understand me. But he couldn't find one. And so he decided to start writing his own. So he'd spend the next few years basically filling a notebook with significant quotations that he had found while he was reading. And he would take these and he would write all these quotations in his little notebook. And this is what he wrote. The quotations which I numbered in red ink for easier reference would lead me, as it were, from fear and anguish through a variety of intervening stages to supreme utterances of release and jubilation. That's what his plan was. So at last, he feels like he's put enough in here and he's sitting down to read through all of these quotes, through this book that he had created that would, would understand me and, and who I am. And he goes outside and he sits under a tree and it's, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day and he, he sits down and he opens his book and he's ready for this transcendent experience. And he says, as I went on reading, however, a growing disappointment came over me. Uh, far from, from speaking into his life, it didn't really do anything for him. It just reminded him of the context and the situation that he was in when he had written down these quotes, but that's all it did. He said, I knew then that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making. And so he took the notebook, put it back in his pocket, whatever. Well, about this time, his wife walks in the backyard. She doesn't know anything of what he's been going through. Uh, that afternoon, she had gone for a stroll, and the boulevard she had gone down had been really crowded. It was hot, so she just took the first turn she could find to get off. She didn't really know where she was. She was just wandering around. She was pushing a baby carriage. The road was kind of bumpy, and so she wants to get off of that, and she sees a grass spot. So she goes over to the grass spot. 
she's standing there and she sees some interesting, an interesting looking staircase. She's like, well, I'm going to walk up that staircase. So she walks up the staircase, there's a door open and she walks in and there's, a, there's an old guy sitting in the back of this room reading and she realizes she's walked into a French Huguenot church and the guy sitting there is a pastor and she says to him, would you happen to have a copy of the Bible in French? And he says, yeah, and he, he hands her a copy and she, she walks out with it and she gets home and she's really excited, but she's kind of guilty at the same time because Emil had said, don't ever bring a Bible into my house. And so she walks in and she starts to apologize to her husband and he stops her and he says, did you say a Bible? You... You have a, a Bible in French? Where is, show it to me. I've never seen one before. And so she hands him this copy of the Bible and he says, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. And he opened at random to the Beatitudes and says, I read and read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me this was the book that would understand me. This was the book that would understand me. Uh, the author of this article I was reading writes, uh, he read deeply into the night, mostly the Gospels, and as he read, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke in them and was depicted in them, came alive to Emil Calais. Calais writes, the providential circumstances amid which the book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. In his providence... God took this man who wanted nothing to do with him, wanted nothing to do with the Bible, and made sure that he got a Bible and heard this story about Jesus. Maybe you've never wanted to hear the story about Jesus. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've never really heard the story about Jesus, the good news that Jesus came to identify with sinners well, in His providence, God has seen that you were here today and you've heard this story about Jesus. The question for you is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the good news about Jesus Christ? Will you read it? Will you open it? Will you repent? Will you believe? In Jesus. We pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, you have seen to it that we would uh, be here and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has come to identify with sinners, with broken people, with people who have been pretending. And he says, Come to me, confess, repent. Believe in what I've done for you. Uh, Father, would you work in hearts today and 
create faith. Draw the faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen.